My heart skips skipping the beat. You're not close enough, so that space between you and me, let's lose it. The way you're dancing, swaying to the music, girl, that body and how you move it. Every time you cross my mind, girl, I lose it. Alexa, play the Country Heat playlist. Okay. With Amazon Music, a voice is all you need. Get tens of millions of songs. Download the Amazon Music app today. Hello and welcome to the Cultural Stew Podcast. My name is Ron Herkins Jr. And welcome to our next episode of Moments of Influence, our little mini podcast we have going here. Today, my guest is Jeffrey Macbeth. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Macbeth. <laughs> Jeffrey Macbeth, tell me who you are and uh, tell me why you're here. So, um, I'm well, Jeffrey Macbeth. I'm a serial, I'm a serial nerd, uh, have been my whole life. Uh, avid book reader, not so much into the uh, movies or the music. Um, I do science all day, every day for work, and it just keeps me happy. And when I get home, I, I read. And uh, you, you had mentioned things that had changed your life. And for me, um, I remember being, it's got to be 10, and in my bedroom and was given uh, the set of the uh, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. I started reading those books and I thought, I can't think of anything that's changed who I am more than that in popular culture. So before that moment, who would you say you were? What kind of kid were you up to uh, that point? Well, exceedingly shy, but that didn't change till long after Tolkien. I don't think it's his fault that that changed. Um, ob- obsessive reader, but I hadn't really found my... Uh, my people yet not you know for the internet you weren't really talking about groups of people anyway that was something that came later what kind of a kid was i uh fascinated in everything uh very curious uh obsessed with uh actually the l frank Baum books at the time i read them all so there you know you say all and there's 50, good 15 of those i think most people are surprised to find out there's more than one <laughs> um yeah, I guess really a voracious reader. Uh, there, there were times at the at that age where during summer break, you know, my goal was book a day, and you know, my mom was dragging me out to the library just as often as she needed to to keep me stocked. So the, this copy of Lord Lord of the Rings, yep, comes across your fingertips, and you start reading it. What are your impressions? So. For me, I think I think the thing that became immediately clear was that there was something more than just the story going on here. It felt more coherent than a lot of the other books that I had read. That there was there was a world behind the words that were actually being given, um, and that intrigued me. Uh, it was long. It was it was a little while before I actually found any of those further words. But I think I think that really impressed me. Where you would read something, and a person's name would come up, and it would just fit to the world that had been described so far. It, and I didn't understand why at the time, but it was, it was, 
it wasn't just, you know, some random number generator, random name generator that someone had used to come up with these names. There was these names were had a purpose and a meaning for Tolkien at the time. And you could feel that that this was the right name for that character. And and that expresses his his uh, ability in world building. Um, you know, you have the typical books there, you know. As a kid, I was a huge comic book nerd. I'm still a huge comic book nerd. Um, but they're these fantasy worlds that are just, they're created and they have to have a backstory. And at least with comic books, there's hundreds and hundreds of years. But Tolkien came in and, and created a world with a fantastical backstory and then put these characters in that backstory and treated it like it was always there. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. You know, you you read about him as a person, and it he started developing this backstory almost as soon as he could read and write. You know, and for him, that was about four years old. Um, the first time it actually got written down that we've got good records of is in uh, 1916. Uh, he had just been um, sent home from uh, World War One. He was in the middle of the Battle of the Somme. He got really, really ill. The army sent him home, and he's you know laying there in bed getting these telegrams of his friends dying and he decides to write a book. Um, and that, that book, um, the fall of Gondoland, um, isn't something that, you know, I say that in everyone's eyes light up. Oh, I know what that book is, but in there you can see all the core pieces of this history and this world that he ended up creating. In fact, um, one of the, one of the main characters in there, uh, his name is Glorfindel. And, uh, in, in, in this, there's this, there's a secret town, there's a secret city up in the mountains, and it's being attacked by the evil bad guys. And Glorfindel, you know, through this epic battle, manages to kill this giant demon. And um, strangely enough, he uses the word Balrog there. That sounds familiar. Yeah, <laughs> and Glorfindel shows up elsewhere. Um, going off topic for just for a brief moment, yeah. if you've seen the movie The Martian. Mm -hmm. um, there's this moment in there where they're, they're starting to form, the NASA's forming their secret plan to rescue Watney. And they call it the uh, Elrond plan. And the, uh, the head of NASA at that moment says, well, I want to be Glorfindel. Because um, he ends up making it out into the rest of this. Uh, one of the early changes that you knew about when the movies were coming out, but hadn't come out yet, was uh, there's this moment where Frodo's running away from the Nazgul. And he gets to this in the... The movie, if I remember right, he gets to this river and Arwen's there to rescue him and they get him across the river and there's these cra this crazy CGI sequence of the, of the horses rampaging down the river. Well, in the book, that's Glorfindel again um, doing that rescue. And so, you know, this, this person, this, this elf who had managed to kill a Balrog got killed himself in this original story makes it into, you know, the rest of his legendarium that ends up being all connected together. In fact, he spent a lot of time trying to think about how on earth did this elf make it back? How is, you know, this doesn't quite fit in with how I've told my story so far. Um, and a lot of his later years in retirement after he was rich and famous from Lord of the Rings and trying to hide from all the fans uh, was trying to figure out, you know, what do I mean by this person coming back? What do I mean by the decisions that I've made all across my life? So you mean a writer that was actually concerned about continuity and consequence? He was obsessed with continuity, which, I mean, boggle, it boggles my mind. If we, if we just pretend that he started doing his creations in 1916, 
He died in 1970. So we're talking, you know, 50, 60 years of his own personal legends that he had built up in his head and trying to maintain some um, philosophical continuity more than anything else. Uh, he kept notes, religious notes, lost them all the time, made decisions that he regretted later. Um, when we talk continuity, uh, probably the most famous thing is The Hobbit. Uh, it, was a, it was just this story that he told his kids. And one of his friends, you know, brought it to the... Uh, Brought it to the ears of a publisher. He got talked into getting it published. Gets it published, and they say, "All right, we need another book." Great, great. This is my chance to get my my you know my personal legendarium released. All this story of the elves and the men and the dwarves. And he sent some of that and said, "Nope, we want a sequel to The Hobbit." He sits down and he starts writing the sequel of The Hobbit. He's like, "I'm going to get them. I'm going to I'm going to sneak my stuff into here." And he gets he gets partway into the first chapter. And he realizes that in the original Hobbit, the story of this ring that Bilbo finds, it's not good enough. It's not powerful enough. It's not scary enough in the original book. And so he's got this, he's got this book that's published out, on, out in the world. And he's really uncomfortable with what, with the, uh, with this, with the, with the story of the riddles in the dark, where he and Gollum have this competition to tell riddles. And what he decides to do is the next edition of The Hobbit comes out with a different chapter there. But it's not just this, we released a second edition of the book, here's a brand new chapter. There's this parts of the story all of a sudden that get changed where um, in the, in the, when he meets up with the dwarves after that moment, we're told that he lied to them. And then that lie, he gives a summary of what the original chapter said. <laughs> and... So if you're a kid and you read the first version of it, yeah, and then one of your friends gets the second version, you start arguing over the same chapter. Oh, absolutely! And you don't realize that <laughs> the chapter actually got changed. Yeah, and and so there's this whole, and it's one thing because this thing existed over sixty years. Um, people tend to talk about Tolkien's world more of a, in fact, I used the word a little earlier, legendarium, rather than what's canon. Um, because it is this big mass of work that contradicts itself and it changes, and we can trace those changes through posthumous uh, publications. Uh, but you know, in that case in particular, we're told Bilbo just flat out lied, and that original story that you got told is because that's the only story that we had, and it wasn't until later that Gandalf was able to talk to Bilbo, figure out what was going on, and get the real story out. And that ends up becoming part of the Lord of the Rings canon is Gandalf's concern about Bilbo for having lied in this moment as a creature that was usually honest to a fault. So how many, how many books did Tolkien put out? So that's a very difficult thing to answer. Uh, he, was a, he was a university professor, and so obviously part of his job was to publish... Um, and so if we talk about just... The, the stuff that were in the vein of... So just Middle-earth, there's four... Uh, his original plan, well, so you have The Hobbit, you have The Lord of the Rings. At the time, Lord of the Rings, uh, World War II was in full swing, paper shortages, and so the publisher decided to split that book into three parts. And so that's where we get the four. Um, everything else related to Middle Earth has been posthumously published by his son, uh, who followed in his footsteps in both profession and in interests. Um, for the most part, it's fairly lightly edited. 
And so you'll get the you'll get these things where like, I've got three manuscripts here. Here's how they agree. Here's how they disagree. And here's how we think the change has happened. But we're not sure because he typed this on the back of a menu or something <laughs> random like that. Um, and so most of those writings are probably somewhere on the order of 12 to 20 further volumes of poetry, of various versions of the story. And I think for me, the Lord of the Rings became a thing that I read every year, just you know, kind of a pilgrimage kind of a thing to go back to that. Um, for me, I think the fundamental change to my personality came from what the, one of the first books that came out after he died, which was called The Silmarillion. And that laid out a lot of his philosophy and his worldviews. Um, a lot of the core stories. And so all of a sudden these names that had meaning, but you weren't quite sure why all of a sudden tied into these deeper stories, little throw off lines in the Lord of the Rings. Um, I think it only shows up in the expanded edition in the movie. Uh, they visit Galadriel in the forest with the elves. And as they leaving, she ends up giving each of them a gift. And in the book and in the extended version of the movie, uh, Gimli asks for a lock of her hair. And there's this whole hushed silence over the crowd as, they're wondering what's going to happen. And then she just, she hands it to him and he says, he's going to treasure this over every, anything else that he's ever had. And it's not till you read, you know, all this other crazy stuff that you find out that Galadriel had a huge backstory. And there was a moment where she had been asked for a lock of her hair for a completely different purpose by a completely different person. And it set off thousands of years of fights and wars and hatred and anger. And, you know, here was this person who was theoretically a enemy of the elves you know, making that same request. And so, you know, there's, there's the character change, there's the intention change um, that, you know, if you're just reading Lord of the Rings is a throwaway line. And I, th I think the book works still on its own. But for me, having all that backstory helps me come to terms with the world that I live in, I guess. So my, my only experience with Tolkien has been strictly through films. Yeah. Um, and they were fantastical to me. I mean, I, the first three uh, came out by um, Peter Jackson, and I was just blown away. Yeah. But, um, you know, how true were those films to the books? Just I'm just talking about the first three. All right. I'm so not going to dig into The Hobbit yet. Yeah, that, that one's complicated. If, if we just talk about the first three... If you allow me the option to add in the extended versions that got released on home mm -hmm. video, it's pretty good. Um, there's some character there's some character changes that I'm really uncomfortable with. Um, Faramir, uh, Aragorn, just their behavior, I'm not very comfortable with. Um, and I think that actually bugs me more than some of the other changes. They got rid of a whole sequence with a character called Tom Bombadil from the Deeper Legendarium. I think it's a sad loss from a let's get a movie made. He doesn't add anything. Um, it's a diversion telling us more about the ring, but not worth not worth adding another half hour to the movie that's mm -hmm. already over long. Uh, it's helpful that already with Tolkien, you're talking about a legend sequence rather than canon, um, because these are, these are stories, and so you would expect them to be retold slightly differently. And so, I think by and large, you'd get a good feel. For the books, I, I, I don't feel like the major plot points get ruined 
or change drastically like happens so often. It's not like they just, you know, like the movie iRobot where they just took the name and ignored anything that Asimov had ever written. Lord of the Rings is not something I would reject as, you know, an invalid attempt at making these movies out of the books that I love. But Hobbit. The Hobbit. The Hobbit's complicated. The Hobbit, most of the things that got added to The Hobbit are from elsewhere in the Tolkien legendarium, except for the love triangle and a couple other things. My, it's not, it's not The Hobbit. I, I think, I don't, I don't want to rip into Peter Jackson because as I've, as I've read about it, it appears that the, that the production was just an absolute disaster. There's stories where he just, he didn't get to do any pre-production and he just sat down and there were times where he just shut down production for two weeks and just sat on set trying to figure out what he was going to do next because he was honestly making his plans, shooting at the same day kind of a thing, which isn't a way to make a coherent movie. But in terms as to The Hobbit that you grew up with and read about? I don't, I don't, I don't think it counts. I, I, it's not... It's so not Lord right. of the Rings is pretty true to form with some minor exceptions, but yeah. Hobbit is. Yeah, I think I think the tone's broken. A lot of the characters are broken in ways that hurt the movie and hurt the story. Um, I think the, the the whole last movie is just a it's a spectacle and not 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 the story that Tolkien would have wanted to tell. But but that's not a fair compare you know creators get persnickety no matter what but I, yeah. I i don't think i don't think it conveys what the hobbit meant to convey i mean the only reason i asked that is because um i'm pretty much well known by now by most people who are around me that i don't read the books until i've seen the movie yeah and um and it's mainly this is one of my core points is how much gets changed from a book to actually trim down to the average two-hour length um, and what's going to get lost. You know, your favorite parts of a movie are eventually going to get thrown to the floor. But here with Hobbit, you had something that was completely opposite of that. There was stuff added to it to strengthen it out into being a trilogy, Yeah, um, which is its own thing in its own right. Well, and it doesn't help, you know, The Hobbit is is fundamentally a kid's book. It was designed to be a kid's book. Uh, It's very episodic. And so trying to build up this strong through story full of action and adventure doesn't work. By profession, he was a linguist. There's tons and tons of puns and word jokes throughout that book. They don't survive. Um, Bilbo's growth doesn't work as well. Thorin Oakenshield's growth doesn't work as well. Um, And so, yeah, I don't think they're, I don't think they work. There's, there's been people that have made attempts to do their own fan edits of the movie. I know there's one out there called the Tolkien edit that takes all three and narrows it down to, I think, a three and a half hour movie. I've not seen it yet. I'm fascinated by the idea because I don't have any intention of ever watching the whole thing again. That might be something to uh, locate. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were to pull something out of the Tolkien universe that has applied to your life and has helped you become who you are now, what would it be? He was an orphan. He was a devout Catholic. Um, he's fairly famous for having helped get C.S. Lewis converted from atheism to Christianity, which ended up producing all the uh, Narnia books and the uh, Christian apologies. And I just bring that up because 
he didn't just take his religion for granted. He thought long and hard about it. And I th- if I were to pick one thing real quickly, I think it might actually be his thoughts and words on the problems of, uh, of evil in the world. Um, by and large, most of his thoughts on religious kind of topics I've kind of adopted as my own and warped in ways that fit in with my own way of thinking. But he, he talks about evil quite extensively in the books. Um, there's conversations between Frodo and Gandalf and Sam about Gollum and what kind of a person he is. There's conversations about the orcs and if they're inherently evil or not. And the answer is no. What kind of power they have? What is good behavior? What's bad behavior? The elves? Uh, Tolkien's not a huge fan of what of how they chose to behave. Um, he thinks they made a big mistake in the decisions that they made. Would attribute a lot of what they did as fairly evil. And uh, there's there's moments where he talks about you know, the problem of evil, which is a, you know, a fairly common phrase in, in, uh, in Christianity. He talks about the problem of evil. It needs to be a problem because if it, if it isn't a problem, we're not thinking about it enough. It, it needs to be something that, we, that is difficult for you. Um, and you need to continually think about it and recognize what you're doing and what, whether, it, whether it complies with the kind of behavior God would expect of you. And... Uh, so and so, a lot of that stuff just is core in how I think. There's this, uh, there's this, there's this scripture that I I tend to refer to a fair amount that talks about you know you've got this power, but if at any time you use that power to, um, with any form of compulsion or strength to force someone else to do something, that power doesn't belong to you anymore, and you don't deserve to have it, and you are no longer righteous. And um, Tolkien really, really believed that. And so a lot of those mistakes that people make in those stories of, you know, Denethor, the head of the uh, Minas Tirith, for example, you know, was trying to force people to be good. Sauron repented a couple times and was brought back to being a good guy. And then he just, he wanted to fix the world and he wasn't patient enough. And so then he fell again. And so I would, Tolkien's, Tolkien's view of the world is just fundamental to how I want to be and it's hard to get into because <laughs> there's so much to it and I think I think if anything that would be my only complaint about the movie but I don't think a movie is capable of conveying that much information so for, for entertainment for trying to tell a good story I think it does a great job but there's no way it could lay out the entire groundwork of background and stuff necessary to have a conversation about how to be a good person. Yeah, from Beth, you are a good person. I'm trying. <laughs> well, Jeff, I want to thank you for joining me today and uh, sharing your view on uh, Tolkien and what he's meant to you. Um, where can we find you if somebody wants to stalk you in the social regions? Um, I am on Facebook, just with my real name. I'm on Twitter with my Jeffrey Macbeth with a period in between because I'm really clever like that and didn't think about 144 characters. Um, those are the main places. I have a blog that I post to periodically, but that makes it on Facebook too. So those are probably the best places to find me. Awesome. You can find me at GF Media or at GF Media CEO pretty much anywhere you go. And you can find us at culturalstew.net or at Cultural Stew Net on Twitter and Cultural Stew on Facebook. Thank you. Catch you next time.
you've liked what you've heard, please consider sponsoring us on Patreon. Patreon is a creator support system that allows people to support the things they love and creators to continue doing what they love. Head on over to patreon.com slash gfmedia and choose the Cultural Stew podcast levels to show your support for us. Thank you. This is Joe Cordell of Cordell & Cordell. Here are a few quick divorce tips we provide our clients. Complete the financial forms you file with the court as if they're the most important final exam you will ever take. These forms state your property, your debts, your income, and expenses. They become the battlefields where your most important disputes are fought or settled. Property division, maintenance, child support, attorney fees, even custody is impacted. Fortunately, this is an open book exam. You can even get help from your attorney. But let me warn you, whether too busy or too jaded, attorneys often fail to demand or give these forms the attention their clients deserve. So it may be up to you. Contact the domestic litigation firm of Cordell & Cordell to schedule an appointment with one of our firm's San Francisco area attorneys, a partner men can count on. 650-389-1111. Online at CordellCordell.com. That's CordellCordell.com. Offices in San Francisco, San Mateo, and San Jose. Se habla español. Legal services available in English and Spanish. Kimberly Llewellyn licensed in California.